Good morning. I'm Pastor Brandon. I encourage you to keep your Bibles open to John 5 as we uh, wrap up uh, this chapter, a chapter that really continues a story that we started a couple of weeks ago, Jesus healing the paralyzed man on the Sabbath and the kind of furious outrage that that created among the Jewish leaders. So uh, the charges that they sought against him to get rid of him. Last week, we looked at the beginning of Jesus' response to that. We saw kind of him draw attention to his dependence on his father uh, and the unique relationship he has with God, the way that God has granted him authority over life and judgment. Well, as we look now at the conclusion of Jesus' response to the Jewish leaders, uh, as I read this story, I can't help but think of it in kind of the terms of a of a modern courtroom drama. Uh, We all, at least many of us, kind of love courtroom dramas, maybe Law and Order, or uh, if you're a classic, you know, To Kill a Mockingbird, or A Few Good Men. My personal favorite is my cousin Vinny. Uh, But we love, you know, we love the high stakes of those kinds of dramas. We love the dramatic exchange between the defense and the prosecution, the, the moving speech to the jury, Uh, But most of all, we love the twist. We love the twist. There's that that sudden turn of the table when when it turns toward justice. Some new evidence is submitted or some surprise witness shows up in the courtroom. Well, in our passage, we have judges and prosecutors. We have witnesses and testimonies, accusations and evidence. We even have a twist as Jesus gets put on the stand by the Jewish leaders who level charges against him that they believe warrant the death penalty. Jesus finds himself on trial. And so what I want to do is walk through his defense, how he concludes his response to the Jewish leaders, his defense of his works, of his authority, ultimately of his identity as the Messiah of God, the promised Son of God sent from the Father. And and so what we're going to do is kind of walk through, follow his argument as he issues his plea, as he calls witnesses, as he makes his defense. Uh, But to get us started, I think it's helpful to kind of review the charges that have been uh, leveled against him. What exactly is Jesus responding to or defending himself against? So again, if you were with us the last two weeks, or if you've otherwise read uh, the earlier part of chapter 5, you'll remember that this whole interchange started when Jesus healed a man uh, on the Sabbath. He healed a man who'd been paralyzed on the Sabbath. What should have signaled to the Jewish leaders that their Messiah was finally here instead roused their anger, and they determined that basically this guy has got to go. Like, we, we cannot abide with him. Uh, they saw his works not as a sign of Jesus' messianic identity, uh, but rather as ignorant violations of God's law and ultimately a rebellious attempt to steal God's throne. That's what they thought they were witnessing. Uh, verse 18 explains, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. 
So if you follow the logic of his accusers, really what they're doing is they're basing their accusations against Jesus on the law of Moses, on on, uh, the, the law of Moses, the covenant that God made with his people. Now, the law of Moses, in in some ways, refers simply to the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis to Deuteronomy. We call that the law of Moses or the book of Moses. But within that story, we also read of this special covenant that God made with ancient Israel. When He brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery, He rescued them, He made them His people, and then He gave them His law, a, a set of stipulations on how they could learn to be His special people and walk with Him. Uh, the heart of that law, that covenant, was, is what we call the Ten Commandments. Uh, but it, it then, of course, is, is expanded beyond that to all sorts of instructions and stipulations that really set the pace and the standard and the categories for life as the people of God under this covenant. Uh, you might think of the law functioning for ancient Israel uh, in a similar way to, the, to how the Constitution functions for Americans today. So it's that single foundational document on which society is built with all of its liberties and limitations. Like it tells you how all of this is supposed to work and what to do when it goes wrong. So in our society today, if somebody goes to trial, the standard is supposed to be the Constitution, the standard to which against which uh, judgments are tried. Now, of course, you got to go through all sorts of legal precedent to get there, but if the system is working the way it's supposed to, the the Constitution is the final standard. In a similar way, the law of Moses functioned for ancient Israel as that source and standard for how to live and to relate with God, Uh, except that unlike our Constitution, it wasn't written by men it was revealed by God to His people. And part of that law that God revealed were instructions like what we see in Exodus 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. An instruction that that the Jewish leaders believed Jesus had just broken by healing a man on the seventh day. Or, Or instructions like, Exodus 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. By, challenging, or, uh, by Jesus claiming to have this unique relationship with the Father, His accusers felt that He was violating that instruction. He was making Himself equal with God, like a rival, when you're supposed to have no other gods before me. They looked to the law of Moses, and they didn't believe that Jesus measured up. So, on that basis this law on which they set their hope, which was their standard for righteousness, their, their uh, hope for all of the promises of God's kingdom, they appeal to that law and charge Jesus with rebellion against God, punishable by death. Those are the charges He's answering. So, how does Jesus plead? How does He plead? Well, in verse 30, uh, you know, we already have seen the first part of his response, verses 19 to 29 we looked at last week, where Jesus kind of spoke about himself in the third person as the Son. And and there he affirmed that everything he does is not done in rebellion against God. It's actually done in dependence on God. He said in verse 19, the Son can do nothing of his own accord. 
Well, he picks up that exact same idea in this last section in verse 30, where now he kind of speaks of himself in the first person. But he says the same thing, I can do nothing of my own accord. Jesus asserts his innocence. He is not acting in rebellion against God, but in dependence on his Father. Even the judgments that he issues, he, th- this authority that God has given him, he issues those judgments in dependence on God. He says in the middle of verse 30, as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Whatever Jesus does, whatever judgment verdict he renders, he does it by listening to his Father and then by carrying out his will. Jesus pleads not guilty to the charges of the Jewish leaders. His judgment is just. It is righteous, in the right, blameless, without fault. It is the direct opposite of rebellion against the Father. He's actually obeying and depending on his Father. And of course, the irony here is that while the Jewish leaders are putting Jesus on the stand, attempting to do so, uh, in reality, he is not the defendant here. He's actually the judge. Like, we learned that in his response last week. God has given him authority to judge. Verse 22, the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. And verse 27, he's given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. They're treating him like a defendant when in reality he's the one who presides over all of this stuff. So who's really rebelling against God in this story? But nevertheless, Jesus offers a defense. Uh, He does not owe his accusers a defense. But in His mercy, He answers their accusation by calling several witnesses to the stand, which, when you think about it, it's absolutely remarkable that, that, he would, that He would do this even though He doesn't owe it to Him. It reminds us that Jesus actually invites our hard questions, even when our attitudes and, and, and motives are less than pure. I mean, sometimes we can think that uh, when it comes to Christianity, you know, we can ask all sorts of hard questions about any other area of life, but it, when it comes to Christianity, we get all insecure. Like, you can't actually say that or think that or wonder that. We just have to pretend like this all makes sense even if we're confused or even if we have doubts. But Jesus entertained hard questions all the time, right? He even entertains ungodly accusations in this story. He doesn't owe them an answer, but He gives them one anyway, which ought to encourage us to investigate the claims of Christ honestly. Don't be afraid to ask the hard questions, but don't be too lazy to do the hard work of finding the answers, right? Sometimes we kind of treat the hard questions as an excuse for disobedience or or unbelief. We're not really trying to find the answers. We're just trying to find a way out of having to follow Jesus. But if we investigate Him honestly, if we genuinely wrestle with who He is, what He has to say, then I think we will find what He is, you know, the main point that He's making in this story, that He gives us every reason to believe that He is who He says He is and thus to follow Him. And and so, Jesus, in His kindness, He calls witnesses 
to the stand in verses 31 to 40. And, and notice how in, in doing this, it's not, he's not just doing it in kindness, he's, he's also doing it in obedience to the law of Moses. So the very law they're basing their accusations on, Jesus is operating in accordance with that law. Verse 31, he says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony's not true. You know, the law of Moses, when, when there were situations where somebody's life was at stake in a judgment, uh, places like Deuteronomy 17.6, they gave instructions that it was necessary to call witnesses to that. You couldn't just base it on your own testimony. You needed the testimony of others, and not just one witness, but the witness of two or three, right? And, and so Jesus, who's facing accusations that could cost him his life, He's talking to people who haven't actually kept the law. They haven't called any witnesses in this situation, but he's going to keep the law. He's going to call witnesses for himself. And, and he doesn't just call one or two or three. He calls four witnesses uh, to the fact that, the, that God the Father has sent him. So in verses 32 to 35, he calls John the Baptist. It's metaphorically, he doesn't actually call John, and then he shows up in the conversation. But metaphorically speaking, uh, he points them to the witness of John the Baptist. I, I can't just bear witness about myself, but there's another who bears witness about me, and he bears reliable witness, this man named John. And we've met John several times in this book so far, right? We met him right in the introduction of John's gospel, where he's the, the one who bore witness to the true light that was coming into the world. We saw him at the end of chapter 1, bear witness that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we saw him again in chapter 3, that, where he bore witness that, that Jesus is the bridegroom. He is that promised one, that promised Messiah. John's just the friend. He gets to point to Jesus. My, I am to decrease, he must increase. And so, Jesus is not the only one saying He is who He is. God sent a prophet ahead of Him in advance to proclaim to the people of God that the Messiah was coming, and He has done so as a reliable witness. I know that the testimony He bears about me is true, Jesus says. Though, John's testimony is itself a concession to the people. Jesus doesn't actually need humans to corroborate His divine identity. He says in verse 34, not that the testimony I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. Jesus doesn't owe them the testimony of John, but He's throwing them a bone, right? He, he wants to persuade them that they might believe and be saved. And so, He, he gives them this testimony even though he doesn't technically need it. And when you look at the ministry of John the Baptist, it, it seems that for a time, the people of Israel were kind of willing to entertain his witness. Uh, Jesus says in 35, he was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Like there was this attraction they had to John to kind of figure this out, and yet it was short-lived, right? You were willing for a while to enjoy his light. Ultimately, at the end of the day, not even John's testimony was compelling for at least these Jewish leaders, because at the end of the day, the only testimony 
that they were willing to entertain was one that confirmed what they already wanted to believe, that this Jesus has got to go. He has got to go. But Jesus can do even better than John's testimony in terms of reliable witnesses to his identity. A human witness like John is great, and, and God, that was part of God's program, part of God's plan. But he says in verse 36, the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. So John bears witness, uh, bears earthly witness, but Jesus has heavenly witnesses that are even more reliable than John's testimony. And so he proceeds to call three more witnesses to the stand, his works, his father, and Israel's scripture. So in the middle of verse 36, he points to his own works. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, these very works I'm doing, the things that you're kind of mad about, they bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. His works declare that he truly has been sent by God. Uh, you might think of it this way. If, if you know, somebody shows up at a restaurant claiming to be sent by the health inspector, but they never go into the kitchen they don't test the temperature of the food. They just sit there eating a free meal. You can surmise pretty quickly that this might be an imposter. They're not doing the kinds of things that a health inspector would have sent somebody to do, right? Jesus, on the other hand, does exactly what you would expect him to do if he had been sent by the Father. In fact, he does the very things the Father promised that the Son would do. That's the whole point of the signs that he has been accomplishing and performing so far in John's gospel. He's th these signs that confirm his identity and that he's been sent by the Father, the, the, the turning water into wine. He, he did that as a sign to declare that the messianic banquet has begun. God's promises of, of this coming wedding. Jesus is the one who starts that party. He heals the official son in Cana as a sign of his authority over life and death, which is exactly what you would expect somebody sent from the Father to do. If he's been given authority over life and death, you ought to see him exercising that authority, right, and bringing the dead to life. Or, or in healing the paralyzed man at the beginning of our chapter, a sign that the one uh, through whom the lame are going to leap like a deer is right here in your midst. His works testify to the fact that God the Father has sent him, not merely as a prophet or a healer, but as the anointed king. But then third, he calls the Father himself to the stand. So not just his works, but the Father to the stand. Verse 37, the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. The, the, God Himself, you know, so one way to, to tell if somebody's spent by the health is sent by the health inspector is to kind of watch what they do. Another way is just to call up the health inspector and ask, did you send this guy? And, and so Jesus points them to God the Father. Ask Him. He bears witness about the fact that He has sent me. But the problem is that the Jewish leaders don't have His number. They, they don't, they're, they're so disconnected from God that they're not actually able to understand the witness that God bears about His Son. You know, for a people who claim to be so devoted to the law of Moses, 
and, and to be defending that law, Jesus draws a stark contrast between the generation who received the law back in, in Exodus through Deuteronomy and the people standing right in front of him. He kind of echoes the language of Deuteronomy 4. Moses is reminding the people of Israel who are getting ready to go into the land, reminding them how God gave them the law. He says in Deuteronomy 4.12 that, that uh, you heard the sound of words, but you saw no form. There was only a voice. Well, Jesus says to his accusers in, in verses 37 to 38, his voice you've never heard. His form you've never seen, and you do not have His Word abiding in you. you. You don't have His number to call Him and ask Him. And why? What's the evidence that they have of this disconnection? For you do not believe the one He has sent. Their refusal to accept Jesus is actually evidence that His accusers don't know God or keep the law that they claim to keep. And his fourth witness suggests the very same thing. Verses 39 to 40, this time Jesus calls Israel's scriptures to the stand. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, which is what the law says, right? Deuteronomy 32, 47. This is no empty word, but it is your very life. But Jesus continues, it is they that bear witness about me yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So Israel's very own scriptures, what we call the Old Testament today, if you read them correctly, the very law that the people, the, 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 the Jewish leaders are depending on as they accuse and oppose Jesus, if you read it correctly, it actually points forward to Jesus, which is a, a remarkable claim that a book written hundreds of years before Jesus was born was actually about Him. But this claim is not unique to Jesus here in John's gospel. He says the same thing to the disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. The Old Testament was about Jesus. The Apostle Paul says the same thing when he, in Acts 26, when he is testifying in Caesarea. He says, I stand here saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. Like the only thing I'm talking about is rooted right there in Israel's scriptures, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. So when you read the Old Testament correctly, the whole thing works together to point us forward to Jesus, to this coming Messiah. Jesus is the centerpiece of the whole Bible, not just the New Testament, Old and New Testament together, which reminds us that we need to know the whole Bible well, how to read it, how it fits together, or we risk missing Jesus. It's become popular in, in recent years to think, well, well, we're really a New Testament people because of Jesus. We don't really, that was Israel's scripture. We don't need that. If you, you, you cannot make sense of Jesus apart from the Old Testament that points forward to him. And, and the Old Testament isn't fulfilled until you get to Jesus who 
who arrives and, and, and fulfills it. We need the whole Bible. And, and so we must be a people of the Word. If we're going to be a people of Jesus, we have to be a people of the book. We absolutely have to. That's how He makes Himself known to us by His Spirit today. To, to learn to, how to read it, to love it, to keep it, to obey it, to give it away in, as, we, as we invest in others. And to that end, um, just as a bit of a shameless plug, one of the Sunday school classes that we're going to be uh, doing next winter session, whatever that's called, starting in January, uh, is an is a overview of the whole Bible. Like, how does this book fit together to tell the one story of God of which Jesus is the center and which makes sense of every other story in this world. So just as a, as a plug, that's one of the classes that you can look forward to in January. So Jesus presents four reliable witnesses, four undeniable testimonies to the fact that he has been sent from God, that he is the Messiah sent from the Father, which not just doesn't just clear his name. It shows us that his accusers really are without excuse. Like they have every reason to believe that Jesus is who he says he is and thus to follow him. And Christ could rest his case at this point. Like he could, he's, these witnesses are reliable. He has shown uh, that they're without excuse, but like any, court, any good courtroom drama, we're, we're still waiting for the twist. And John 5 doesn't disappoint. When you, when you get to verses 41 to 47, we, we find that twist where the tables finally turn toward justice, where the accusers actually then end up on the stand themselves as Jesus calls a surprise witness who bears testimony against them. So, in, in verses 41 to 44, Jesus flips the tables full on here, and, and He begins calling out the Jewish leaders, uh, their motives, and exposing their man-centered agenda. What's underneath their rejection of Him? So, while they're claiming to defend God's kingdom, the reality is they're not really serving God, but themselves. Again, they are only willing to entertain testimony that tells them what they already believe and want to believe. They're not really interested in the truth. And so it doesn't matter to them how reliable Jesus' witnesses are. They're not going to hear them because the witnesses don't tell them what they want to believe, what they already believe. Instead, they want to be right, and they want everybody to know that they're right so that they can get rid of Jesus. In contrast to Jesus in verse 41, who does not receive glory from man, that's all they're interested in, receiving glory from man, not from God. And the evidence of that is their refusal to receive the one whom God sent. Verse 43, Jesus says, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? So again, they're not interested in serving God or finding the truth, but in making sure everybody knows they're right, giving glory to one another, which invites us to ask ourselves an uncomfortable question, that when it comes 
to navigating life and faith, when we're wrestling with the things of God and morality and purpose and relationships and and truth, are we only interested, are, are we truly interested in hearing from the Lord or are we only willing to receive testimony to whatever confirms what we already want to believe? Are we selecting the voices in our lives simply to confirm that we're right? Or are we looking to hear a word from God? Another way to put it, whose glory are we ultimately seeking in this life? Whose voice and therefore whose favor do we treasure above all else? Is it the acceptance of those who hold power? Or is it the praise of everybody who follows me on social media? such that I'm willing to believe and do whatever will please them and get me ahead? Or do we seek the glory of the only God who has revealed Himself to us in a new and climactic way through His Son? Is that whose voice, whose pleasure we delight to seek? Jesus exposes their man-centered agenda He turns the tables, He puts them on the stand, He calls out their rebellion, and then He drives it home with one more testimony, a surprise witness. You can kind of picture Him at the front of the courtroom. He says, Your Honor, I would like to call Moses to the stand. And the gasp over the courtroom and the shock on His accuser's face is not just because Moses has been dead for like 2,000 years, but... Moses is their guy, like he's the one that they're serving and, 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 and depending on. And so, why in the world would Jesus call Moses to the stand? That, that's going to backfire. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 45. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you will not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And you can almost hear the gears grinding in in his accuser's head, right? Like, what in the world do you mean we don't believe Moses' writing? That's the only thing we believe. Like, that's our hope. That's our guy. And yet... The reality is they don't know Moses half as well as they think they do. They've actually been misreading the law of Moses because they have missed seeing Jesus in it. If the object of our hope does not ultimately anchor us in Christ, if whatever we're depending on in this life or direction and and, and whatever we're holding on to doesn't direct us to and fix us in Christ then it will actually testify against us that we have neglected Christ. It will become evidence of our unbelief. And so the Jews' greatest hope here, the thing that they thought was like guiding them and anchoring them and going to prove that they're right, actually bears witness against them of their rebellion against God. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Which again, that is a remarkable claim to think that, that Jesus is saying 
that the law of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, wait, there's Leviticus in there, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five books of you know, the Bible, the, the law of Moses, that it actually talks about Jesus? Like, if you do a Google search on that, you don't find his name in there. So, so did Moses really write about Jesus? And if so, how? That's a shocking claim. It's so shocking and so intriguing that we're actually going to step out of John's gospel during the season of Advent for the next five Sundays to look at the law of Moses and how it points us to Christ. We're going to take a selection from each of the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, to see how it actually directs our attention to God's promised Son, how Jesus has always been God's plan of salvation for the world, which means that the Jewish leaders and any who would reject Jesus truly are without excuse. He has not left himself without a witness. The life that God promised Israel through the law is available through Jesus and through Jesus alone, such that for the Jews to reject Jesus is actually to forfeit their covenant heritage and forfeit life. But to listen to those reliable witnesses and believe that Jesus is the Son of God who came into the world as their promised Messiah, that is actually to keep the law as it's fulfilled in Christ and to find the eternal life that God wants to give. Because even though Jesus did not deserve to be on the stand that day or any day, that's exactly where he ends up at the end of his earthly life. In the seat of the defense, being wrongly accused of rebellion against God, even though he is perfectly righteous, the only one in the room who's actually kept the law perfectly. He willingly takes our place. He, as the perfect covenant keeper, takes the place of all of us who have failed God and his covenant, that he might ascribe to us his not guilty verdict. He takes our guilt, our punishment, so that He might give us the life that we could never get from ourselves, for ourselves. We truly have every reason to believe in Jesus and to find eternal life in Him. And so I want to commend to you what every passage in John's gospel commends to us, to trust Jesus and live if you do not know Christ yet, take hold of Him. Investigate the claims of Christ honestly. Do, ask the hard questions and do the hard work of finding answers. He has given you every reason to believe in Him. And if you do know Christ, hold fast to Him. Get to know His Word. Get to know His Word. The, the reason that the Jewish leaders missed Jesus wasn't because they knew their Bibles too well. It's because they didn't know them well enough. If we're going to be a people who love and treasure and follow Jesus, we must be a people who know and love and treasure His Word. That's how He makes Himself known to us. So get to know His Word. The deeper we go into Scripture, the more beautiful we see Jesus to be and the richer our relationship with Him becomes. 
Not just a relationship of information, but of, of love, of transformation as we follow Him. So get to know His Word and seek His glory, not the glory of yourself or anyone else. Do not surround yourself only with voices who will tell you that you're right and you're amazing and everybody else around you is wrong. Surround yourself with voices who will speak the Word of God to you, whether it's uncomfortable or not. We, we need to hear from God and seek His glory, not our own. And finally, rest your hope fully in Jesus. He is the one whom God sent. He is the one whom God sent to make right everything that's wrong in this world, to deal with our sin, to bring all of this broken mess that is the world around us, that is our lives, our hearts within us, to bring it all under the redemptive reign of God, to make us new, and, and, and that we might truly live an eternal life that, that isn't just waiting for us in heaven, but that is available now through faith in Christ. And, and the life God calls us to, the life God envisions, it's not just about beginning with Christ. John is, John's gospel is so passionate about somebody who doesn't know Jesus coming to know Jesus, that sometimes we can think that the whole book is just kind of for non-believers. But the life God envisions for us isn't just about starting with Christ. It's about growing in Christ and walking with Him every single day, walking in the confidence that we have every reason to believe Jesus is who He says He is and that He has done what He has said He has done and how that then changes us as we seek to grow in Him, as we seek to trust Him, when, when the wheels come off, as we seek to depend on Him for daily bread, as we seek to persevere through hardship and suffering, as we seek to take up our call to bear witness to Christ. Just as He has given reliable witnesses in our story, so He calls us to be that kind of reliable witness to others, to give them every reason to believe in Jesus. And so, may we listen to those reliable witnesses. May we take Jesus at His Word to trust Him, to hold fast to Him, and to live the life that He alone can give. Let's pray. Gracious Father, Lord, thank You that You have not left us without a witness to Your holiness, to Your presence, to your, to your kindness and mercy. There's so many things about this world that testify to Your existence, to Your love, to Your wisdom, but You have given us the greatest witness in Your Son. Lord, help us listen to the witness of Your Word as we grow in faith and obedience to Your Son. And may we walk with confidence in Him. May we depend on Him daily. May we abide in Him as you together are one. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.